Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Indefensible Plants podcast, the official podcast of indefensibleplants.com. What's up? This is your host, Matt. Welcome to the show. How is everyone doing this week? Well, if you live in the lower 48 United States, you're going to be doing a bit better because we are talking about the state of United States trees, just the lower 48 for reasons that the paper will describe, but it's a monumental effort to assess the conservation status of all of our trees. Joining us to talk about this is Dr. Murphy Westwood of the Morton Arboretum, and she's going to describe the wonderful breakdown of how it happened, why it happened, and all of the benefits that have come out of this. If you care about tree conservation, this is a fantastic episode for you. So I don't want to steal any more of her time. Let's just jump right into it. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Murphy Westwood. I hope you enjoy. All right, Dr. Murphy Westwood, welcome back to the podcast. It has been a minute since you've been on, and a lot has happened since then. For all of my new listeners, then, how about we start off with an introduction? Tell everyone a little bit about who you are and what it is you do. Thank you. It is great to be back. Um, So I am the Vice President of Science and Conservation at the Morton Arboretum, which is a tree-focused public garden in the western suburbs of Chicago. We are on 1,700 acres and have a large collection of living plants as well as a herbarium. We have about 4,500 different taxa of plants that we grow and hundreds of thousands of mm-hmm. individual plants. We uh, have a large education pro- program. We engage about one and a quarter million people a year of visitors who oh. come through to see us, to come, you know, walk the grounds, to take a class, to participate in an event. And then in my department in science and conservation, we have um, several different programs. We have a center for tree science that focuses on research related to trees, for example, uh, root biology, soil ecology, conservation genetics, systematics, those sorts of um, disciplines. We have a global tree conservation program, which works on saving threatened trees from extinction through global collaborations. And then we have a local uh, conservation and urban and community forestry arm, our Chicago Region Trees Initiative. Excellent. So a lot to do on any given day. And it sounds like you have had a promotion since we last talked, too. Congratulations. Thank you very much. Yes. So I used (laughs) to run the Global Tree Conservation Program. So one of those three major divisions within the department. And now I oversee um, all of it. (laughs) (laughs) No big deal. But that's awesome. I'm really happy to see someone like you in charge and and doing things for tree conservation, which coincidentally is why we're talking today. Uh, So last time we talked about more of a global perspective on this, but recently it was published uh, a a state of the United States trees, or at least North America's trees. I believe it was U.S. specific though, right? Yes, that's right. So our, the actual geographic sort of catchment area we were focused on was the contiguous 48 states for this particular project. Excellent. And that is no small task. We happen to be sitting in a few biodiversity hotspots here in North America, specifically politically boundered boundaried United States. So I'm guessing this was not something you just picked up and did on a long weekend, right? <laughs> no, this was so the the project that we that we just recently published, our big report was the essentially the state of US trees. And it was the culmination of five years of work. Dang. And probably even longer than that of just sort of discussions and brainstorming with our partners in this. And this was Uh, definitely a big team effort. Um, So we partnered with the United States Botanic Garden, Botanic Gardens Conservation International, or BGCI, and NatureServe, as well as the U.S. Forest Service to understand basically the state of the country's trees and their risk of extinction. That is a awesome group of people to have in a room. And I can only imagine what some of those early days discussions were like. Uh, But the thing that kind of floored me is like when I was reading even just the assessment itself, but a lot of what people were starting to report on, the question 
always comes to like, where do you draw the line at a tree? I mean, <laughs> it seems simple at face value. And then when you start to think about when you even try to approach an analysis like this or an assessment, you have to draw the line somewhere. And trying to find a true scientific definition of a tree is not easy, surprisingly. So where did you guys begin in that realm of thinking? It is not easy. You are right. And I had this conversation with several, uh, with many colleagues. I mean, I, and we, I, I kind of joke about it because I work at an arboretum and <laughs> I don't know the definition of like, what is a tree? You know, we had that conversation. And so I joke that like I needed, you know, someone, I needed to get a new job or someone needed to fire <laughs> me because this lady doesn't know what a tree is. Oh, no. It's actually not easy. Right. So a, a tree is not a sort of botanically defined concept. It's essentially like a human construct of wanting to categorize those big woody things that cast shade, basically. (laughs) Um, So it's not like a fruit or a leaf that is that's more kind of biologically defined. So when we set out and let and I'll back up a little bit, the overall goal of our U.S. tree assessment was to join into and be a part of this much bigger, broader global effort called the Global Tree Assessment. And this was a big project that was sort of officially announced in in about 2015. Mm. And it was led by Botanic Gardens Conservation International, BGCI, that I mentioned earlier, and the um, International Union for Conservation of Nature Global Tree Specialist Group. So a global network of essentially scientists, but volunteer scientists that, you know, we all kind of get together um, under this umbrella of trees for the purposes largely of red listing. So doing threat assessments or conservation assessments, sometimes those terms are used interchangeably. Mm. And the goal that BGCI and this global tree specialist group set out was to understand it and and get a, a threat a threat assessment or a risk of extinction of all of the world's tree species. Hmm. And in 2015, we didn't even know how many tree species there were <laughs> in the world. So it like that was step one. Um, and so we had sort of been working on that. And when and when the global tree assessment was announced, that's when I started having some of these conversations with some of these friends in the U.S. These partners to say, I wonder what the state for the U.S. is and we actually did not have a very good handle on, um, you know, actually how many trees there were based on this sort of common definition or even identifying a common <laughs> definition. So we wanted to be a part of this global tree assessment and they tackled this same question. What is a tree? And for the purposes of the global tree assessment, the global tree specialist group determined this common definition that we would all share so that we could standardize our efforts. And the definition is a woody plant with usually a single stem growing to a height of at least two meters, or if multi-stemmed, then at least one vertical stem, five centimeters in diameter at breast height. That was our standard definition for the global tree assessment. Now, there are many other concepts, right, or definitions of trees out there. So the U.S. Forest Service, who is a partner on this with us, has their own definition of a tree that usually hovers around four meters and there are different exceptions. There's different sort of qualifying language. So the tricky thing was basically creating a list of species that qualified for that definition. And that did not exist when we started. So that was kind of, yeah, that was the first step. (laughs) (laughs) Oh man. I don't, I don't envy you in a way in those early days, but it's one of those things where these are the kinds of questions that show us where our weaknesses are and, and where we need to start drilling in. And of course, with it being sort of this non-biologically sound, easy to point to thing, you just got to sometimes pick a line in the sand and say, we're going to stop here. And for another day, this is where we start getting into what we're going to call shrubs. Um so, yeah, I, I both don't envy, but also really respect that you got that many people in a room and signed off on something. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure that, you know, that probably was a, a hurdle all in itself. And, I'm and you know, you make a really good point, which is that there are that people may well disagree with some of these kind of designations. And there are a whole lot of trees, especially certain tree groups like in the U.S., viburnums or, you know, hawthorns, trees like plant like plant groups that are sort of 
shrubby or large shrubby woody plants. And there's a lot of things that kind of hover around that, you know, shrubbiness, treeness type of um, distinction. So in the report that we published, we actually, we published our checklist, the list that we determined to be species that qualify that for that particular definition. And we provide also a tab with a whole list of species that we considered or that nearly made it, but just about, but just didn't because they either weren't really a tree or they weren't native to the 48 contiguous Mm, United States or the taxonomic challenges around them. We didn't also, we also didn't look at infrataxa. So like varieties or, um, you know, subspecies. And those are very important yeah. entities worth conserving and worth understanding and studying further. But those are even harder to define <laughs> and kind of understand. So, and it would, you know, probably would have doubled in scope. It would be a very logical next step. And it would be great for us or anybody else to, to pursue that level of detail as well. Um, but this was a sort of first pass and a kind of, you know, first attempt at that. So, um, yeah, it is, um, it, it was a not easy. That part was this, we thought it would be the like actual individual species assessments that would take us the long time, but figuring out this list was, was a challenge. Yeah. And I'm really happy you brought up sort of the taxonomic side of things. Another area I don't really envy you guys working together on this, but yeah, it's a first pass. Like you said, this is a starting point. And until you do something like this, you don't know what you don't know yet. And and then you kind of have a new point to move forward with. But I'm curious where you started, because I mean, you had to think about taxonomy at some level here and get sort of into those nitty gritty. So like, for instance, uh, you know, where did you draw the line? Is it Acer Sicarum or is it Acer Floridanum or Sicarum Var Floridanum? I mean, how did you start to really tease in where the line in the sand is because i mean i've seen a lot of really high-powered taxonomists not agree on things who gets the most voice in those moments when you're not sure so that's a great question and you know also something that we you know we are not the world's experts on u.s tree taxonomy right what we wanted to do was do threat assessments and understand the risk of extinction for these things so we and and there are actually a lot of really good strong existing databases where we could pull a whole lot of this information so good. we relied heavily on you know the checklist of us trees that us forest service had originally published the biota of north america program the usda plants database nature serve our partner has their own taxonomic backbone and plant database that we relied we you know consulted relied on and then all of the information that we sort of aggregated, we also worked with the BGCI Global Tree Search Database, which is Mm. um, a sort of curated uh, checklist of trees, of validly published tree names. And that was where we ultimately aligned our list to. So, um, you know, it was when we were sort of like, should we choose this over that? There is a lot of taxonomic debate. And so, we kind of explain in the paper what we did, which was essentially to, to kind of pull things that had been, been designated as trees from flora of North America, from USDA plants, from, you know, the Biota of North America, the Bonant program, from the BG, from the existing BGCI global tree search, because that was already well populated with a lot of U.S. species. And then just sort of going through all of those, making sure that they were, because you sometimes have species that are like a tree in Central America or in the Caribbean, (laughs) but then are shrubbier in the U.S. So, you know, kind of resolving, like, is it a tree in the 48, you know, uh, contiguous United States? Um, And sort of trying to go with, like, whatever the most unanimous opinion about taxonomy was among those kind of well-respected databases, but even they don't all disagree. So we basically try to be as transparent as we can by just sort of showing the list of species that we accepted, showing the species that we didn't, that we chose not to include. I mean, it's not right or wrong. Like those right. can and maybe should be assessed as well. Um, but that was just sort of how, like kind of how we approached it. Nice. And I mean, again, having those appendices at the end gives you a nice convenient starting point for anyone that does want to tackle those questions yeah. for those species. You know, you've done some of the legwork already, but 
you know, I, I love this idea of consensus. If enough people in a room say yes, that's a perfect operating point. And to vet it against some of the world's authorities is even better because that's where all of this stuff starts to come together is, is how is this the most useful for the people doing the legwork on a lot of the actual assessment and conservation side of this thing? It has to be useful for them. It can't just be at the whim of whatever was going on in the room at that moment. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And ultimately, we wanted uh, like a list of species that was stand that could be standardized and kind of compared objectively to this global tree assessment and that we could, you know, use as the baseline for the threat assessments that we mm. were going to compile. It's only ever a snapshot in time, <laughs> you know, we continue to do molecular work, for example, that maybe distinguishes something that is actually, you know, genetically pretty identical to everything else. It's just a sort of local variant or environmental variant. So, you know, maybe species get reclassified or lumped or split over time. We discover new things. Um, species go extinct. So, you know, the list is constantly changing. Yeah. Um, and it's only ever just sort of how you capture it in that moment. Sure, sure. And and all of this always couched in the understanding that there's always going to be more work to do. Yeah. Yeah. You're never done. And so with all of the consensus together and all of the filters put on the potential list of species, what was the actual number you got for the lower 48 to begin with? And then we can get into where it went from there. Yeah. So the, so the basic list, and we and we have this published in our paper, which can be found in the journal Plants, People, Planet, the final report, and it has the checklist available as a downloadable Excel spreadsheet. Nice. Um, there are 881 species of tree from Ooh. 269 genera in 79 families. Wow. That's an impressive number. I don't know what I was expecting when I picked it yeah. up, but yeah, that's... It's cool to see it laid out that way. It is. So, you know, in the grand scheme of things, we know that there are just under 60,000 tree species in the world. Now, hmm. this is one of the other outputs of this big global tree assessment effort was to create that global tree search database and actually say, how many tree species are there? Yeah. And based on that definition, there are about, I think it's 59,000. Hmm. That also is a number that is in sort of constant flux. <laughs> yeah. Um, so... You know, it's a little less than 2% of the world's tree species. So we're, you know, not, I think for our, and that, that's just in the 48 too. Right. If you include Hawaii and Puerto Rico and U.S. Virgin Islands and, you know, some of the other U.S. territories, that number jumps a lot. Mm. Um, but yeah, in our 48 states, it's, you know, it's pretty good. Yeah, it's impressive. Important chunk of the world's tree diversity yeah i mean it would really suck to lose 881 species so yeah think about it in that context and things get a little bit more real but when you were doing this obviously the the political boundaries do mean something because that's where all of the conservation actions really have to operate on there's always cross-border opportunities and we should increase those but when you think of hotspots within the lower 48 United States, where did the highest diversity really start to sort out geographically speaking? Yeah, that's a really good point. And it is important to think about, you know, of course, species don't follow our geo, our arbitrary geopolitical <laughs> boundaries, but our geopolitical boundaries are very important for conservation purposes. That is the scale at which policy is set, right? Whether that's at the country level, at the state level, or even sort of within a, a designated protected area, you know, what are they focusing on in their footprint? So understanding our human contrived boundaries is really important. And in the United States, so of that 881 species, 294 are endemic to the lower uh, wow. 48. And that's actually a big number, yeah. I think. So those are the species, for example, that let like we and we alone in the U.S. are responsible for, I think, huh. as far as like making sure that those do not go extinct. So those are like fully our problem to deal with. <laughs> um, so 294 endemic species. And then if you look, we, we then did a um, sort of geographic analysis by state. You can do this deeper dive, for example, by county level if you wanted to. Yeah. 
Um, there are a lot of different ways to take this. And I, I would love for people to download this data set that we have and query it by county and sort of say, you know, what which counties are the most species. I mean, there's a ton of different ways to like yeah. slice the, these numbers up. We looked at the state level and for native trees, the Florida and uh, Texas have the highest number of huh. native tree species. Florida has 338 and Texas has 320. Dang. But overall, the Southeast, Texas, and California are our tree hotspots. Nice. I really do. I, I expected Florida and California. Those are kind of like, oh, yeah, of course. But Texas does surprise me. And I feel like I just, I'm ignorant of Texas. And there's just so much landmass down there. When you really start to put it all together, like, yeah, I could kind of see why there's probably a lot more going on diversity wise than I gave it credit for. That's me being ignorant, but I, that's a surprise for me. And that's kind of cool. Yeah, no, I agree. And I think that's, you know, I think that's right. It's a, it's a very big state. It crosses, you know, a few different sort of key kind of ecosystems and habitat types. You also have some really interesting um, like sky islands mm. there where you have, you know, maybe a whole lot of desert, but then. Um, a lot of topography where you can have some kind of, you know, hanger species that are like hangers on, right? Yeah. Perhaps the climate of the past. So it does have some really interesting, you know, diversity hot spots and is one area where actually we have separately, we have, you know, a lot of um, interesting conservation projects underway and um, a lot of opportunity there, I think, for um, for great conservation work. That's excellent. And again, this is the benefit of doing that is going, oh, yeah, hey, that's something we should be paying more attention to. But, you know, when we think about how we define biodiversity hotspots around the globe, something I think a lot of people, even not botanically or nature minded, will get their heads wrapped around on some level. It's done based on the plants. And so when you think about these hotspots or areas where there's a lot of endemism, you start thinking of all the special, unique relationships these organisms are having with the rest of the living world. And, and it just really puts a foundation down to go, yeah, that's important. It's good. We know that now what? Yeah. Yeah. I, I love that you brought that up and it is, it's true. The like two uh, criteria essentially for defining a global biodiversity hotspot is the number of vascular plant species and the amount of sort of habitat destruction or, mm. you know, kind of, you know, deterioration of that location as well. And so it's one of these actually fairly unique situations where plants were prioritized <laughs> over animals, for right. example. Um, but it's true. Like our plants form the foundation upon which so much of our biodiversity and our, you know, ecosystem services depend. And trees are a really important component of that, too. And I think to sort of circle back to the earlier conversation about trees mm. being a human construct, some people might say, well, why? Why then bother? Why not go based on you know, taxonomy or phylogeny or ecosystem type to, you know, do, and all of those things are done, can be done and are done, sure, right? Prioritizing valid. in different <laughs> ways. But I think thinking about trees is these really important, you know, elements of our biodiversity of our terrestrial ecosystems. I think that is, you know, one of the motivators behind why should we focus on trees specifically is sort of that unique life form that yeah. they are and how important they are to biodiversity and to, you know, these hotspots. Right, right. And to build off of that, you know, you think of if you went the taxonomic route, you might be capturing certain groups that benefit certain groups. I mean, tree, it's it's like succulent. It's a lifestyle. It's not a taxonomic destina d distinction. And so you're capturing so much more of that ecosystem level sort of stuff because a lot of families have produced something approaching a tree. You know, all that crab stuff where like everything turns into crabs, like bullshit. Everything turns into trees if you really want to get serious about it. Weird convergent evolution patterns. So, Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, and, I, and we see that right in the data. So we, all, we also kind of parsed it out looking at how the trees are distributed across taxonomy and taxonomic groups. Cool. And yeah, and what we found is that a hand, just a handful of genera are, you know, responsible for a whole lot of tree species mm. in the U.S. Our oaks and our hawthorns are the most species rich tree group in the United States. There are about 85, 84 species of um, hawthorn and 85 species of, uh, of oak. Sheesh. Um Actually, uh, yeah. And um, 
So those two groups are like, you know, dominate our tree flora. But then there's, you know, hundreds of additional genera that have trees in the United States. So it's that sort of like, you know, a few are responsible for a lot of the trees. And those are sort of some groups, again, if you were to prioritize resources and effort, you know, focusing on some of those groups that really are tree rich is important to do. Um, But also trees are all across the, you know, the sort of family tree in the United States are Mm -hmm. a lot of different um, genera that contribute to our tree flora. Are you telling me there's more power laws in nature than we already are aware of? (laughs) Dang. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, And so with all the filters on, now you have numbers. Now you know where places are or where, where in the United States the, the hotspots really are and where they aren't, uh, where the endemism happens, where it's not. Where did you start and how did you start drilling into the assessment part of this? Because the whole point was to not just say, like, look, we've got a number. It's, okay, what is the status of all 881 species? Yeah, that's, that is a great question. So we were really fortunate that we had NatureServe as a partner from day one yeah. as part of this project. <laughs> so... Um, NatureServe, so for listeners who may not be aware, NatureServe is a, uh, a conservation organization that is, uh, that gathers biodiversity data. It is, um, it has this great new website that it's, I guess, probably not that new anymore, but it's got a great new website. Everyone should check out. They have their own essentially, uh, extinction risk process and platform that has been that they've been managing for 30 or 40 years. And those are the NatureServe uh, conservation status assessments, you can they basically give a species a global uh, or a national or a subnational rank. And um, the subnational ranks are usually at like the state level. Right. Um, but they are, you know, it's part, it's this network of state natural heritage programs and state botanists, and they actually have a lot of data for trees. In fact, the NatureServe threat assessment sort of platform was very well represented for U.S. trees. So once we got this list together, we, you know, we were able to sort of say, okay, NatureServe, what have you got? And over 90%, over 95% of the species had an assessment in NatureServe and had data populated there. But a lot of them were out of date. So a lot of these global ranks were like more than 30 years old. And in conservation terms, especially with how quickly things are changing with climate change, with, you know, everything happening in the world, we need to be updating these things a lot more regularly and a lot more frequently. I think so 10 years really is like the best practice that you should be assessing a species at least every 10 years to sort of stay on top of it. Otherwise you may just have missed that, you know, (laughs) that opportunity, like the status could decline really quickly. So NatureServe is a core partner, but to go back to that global tree assessment um, initiative, the platform of choice for that effort is the IUCN, International Union for Conservation of Nature's Red List of Threatened Species. And that's probably what more people are maybe familiar with. When you say something's red listed, when you talk about the concept of a red list, um, that is probably the world's gold standard for assessing the extinction risk of plant and animal species. It's the most widely recognized and it's you know, applicable at a global scale, whereas nature serves is more focused on North America. Mm. So we said, well, if we're going to be updating assessments and sort of figuring things out for U.S. trees, we don't want to duplicate effort, right? <laughs> we want to do this as streamlined as we can. We don't have, you know, unlimited resources and time. Let's, you know, and those two platforms are sort of used differently, I guess, sure. by different audiences. So we were, we said, let's do it all together. So actually the title of our paper is data sharing for conservation, because the point of it was that we couldn't have done this alone. And, you know, it, what we want to do is facilitate more biodiversity data sharing. And yeah. so um, the red list was very poorly represented for trees in the U.S. There were fewer than 300 tree species on the red list when we started in 2017. We now know there's 881 tree species. So that was the difference we had to make up in terms of assessments for the red list. Hmm. For NatureServe, it was more about updating things. So what we did was 
where we could pull recent data from NatureServe, we did that. And we used that to populate the red list and to sort of streamline that process. And that was really helpful. And then we also just did a whole lot of assessments from scratch that we then updated on both platforms simultaneously. That, um, no, thank you. (laughs) Just from a data organization standpoint, I love that the effort, I love it, but boy, that made me anxious hearing that. (laughs) And this is why, you know, partners are so important. So this was, you know, a great team of, you know, our immediate staff members, you know, across these partner organizations that I mentioned, but also the way that you compile assessments, especially at a large scale or for a big group of organisms is through contacts and information from the experts and the botanists and the conservation practitioners and the forest service staff and the you know natural areas managers on the ground across the country who right. know these species inside and out in their native habitats and that's not us right we're based in chicago we don't know the native plants of florida for example so you know there is a sort of core group of people that facilitated this and that kind of coordinated these assessments but we could not have done it without the hundreds of experts that we reached out to to say tell us about this species you know where you live and work and you know in this place in this native habitat so that's why it took five years is sort of it's a big literature review it's you know trolling through floras and trip reports and you know what we know about habitat destruction and human use of these species but then also talking with these experts um you know across the country to get you know their opinions on does this population still exist has this one been extirpated you know how is it going for the species are there any new invasive pests and diseases that are on your radar and you know that was really the collective effort of this of this work dang yeah, I mean, shout out to everyone that lays the groundwork of just doing the assessments, let alone actively conserving species. But I could imagine with 881 species, you probably came across a fair few where even if someone's aware of it and, you know, wants to do something, there's only so much time in human power. And some areas of the country are better funded and better supported in their botanical and ecological knowledge and, and, and effort than others. And I'm guessing you ran into a fair few where it, it has been 30, 40 years since anyone and you just kind of go, this is the best we got right now. Yeah. And in the end, we ended up also with several species that are that are still considered data deficient, essentially. Yeah. Like we asked we asked people, we, you know, tried to do the literature review. We did, you know, we Googled till our, you know, little fingers bled and there was still just not enough information out there. Um, And so there's still work to do, you know, I mean, we are, we essentially after, you know, this five years of effort, we now have the red list is 90, nearly 97% complete. There are assessments for nearly 97% of these USG species. And for nature service also nearly, they're both over 96%. So I suppose we jumped the gun a little bit when we published our paper and said we, you know, the complete assessment, okay, we're a few species short because there's just not, you know, we just couldn't get the information we needed for some of these. So, you know, we ended up doing, it was a threefold increase in the number of species represented on the red list for the U.S., right? Below, it was about 250 before we're up to nearly 600 species. Well, we did nearly 600 new species or updated assessments for the red list. So, you know, we're pretty proud of where both of these platforms currently are. But yeah, there's dozens of species that are either data deficient or just we haven't evaluated yet, or they're right on the cusp of that 10-year expiration date. And we need to keep going, right? We need to sort of carry on each year assessments become essentially expired and so this is a constant effort to keep things up to date yeah i mean another reiteration of the importance of assessments like this because they show you where the weaknesses are and i'm actually very surprised the number is as low as it is i mean kudos for figuring that out but you know when you think of what we're facing you hear a lot of people talking about oh botany's disappearing well a lot of them are becoming ecologists or just it's a different umbrella on the university program but it doesn't replace the fact that these are the people that are going to have to do that work those are the people that get paid to do that work and if they're all retiring or moving on ooh, it's a lot more work with fewer people so 
when people think of how to get involved, I mean, this is the, the groundwork that makes all of this conservation stuff happen at the end of the day, the hundreds of people on the ground doing these assessments. Yeah, and I would love to put in a plug here for if you are a graduate student looking <laughs> at doing ecology work, you know, you're working on a particular habitat type or a particular species, look up its threat assessment, look it up on NatureServe, look it up on the IUCN Red List and see if it has been assessed. Everybody listening probably has their favorite tree, yeah, right? I'd hope. If everybody just went and quickly looked these assessments up and, you know, or something that you know really well, do you agree with the assessment? Does it feel out of date to you? Do you have information that you could contribute? Let us know and we can, you know, we can update it. So I'd love to see that, you know, be more incorporated into research projects that students are doing or restoration work that, you know, land managers are doing, or if you're describing a new species, do a threat assessment for it. So, you know, I think there's ways to kind of integrate this a little bit more because this is the baseline information that we need to prioritize regions and funding. And, you know, these are the resources, for example, that the, you know, that the state may turn to or the endangered species, you know, the ESA might turn to to say, you know, should this thing be federally protected or state protected yeah. these are this is the you know information that they would consult i love that i mean this is not ever nor should it ever be a purely academic pursuit this is something we all have to get involved in and having data sets like this available charts and different things to look at freely available to people that want to do the extra homework i mean this is the difference between sitting waiting not talking to the the local municipality leaders or going up and making some noise for a species of concern that maybe, you know, a new development's going in. Well, we haven't assessed this yet. You can be the thorn in the side of progress. No, I don't mean to say it that way. This is the way to make noise and make things happen. And it just goes to show you that, like, we can all have a stake in this, no matter what our interests are, or what our professions even are at this point in time. Yeah, agree. Strongly agree. And, and our hope is that making this database or this data set that we made downloadable, filterable, sortable. We want everybody, you know, you could, you can download it. You can say, you know, okay, what are my native trees in the state of Alabama? And, you know, where, what should I be focusing on? What are the, what are the different groups I should look at? You can go back and look them up and say, oh, this is the, the most common threat that my, you know, that these trees are facing. Maybe that's something that we need to be, you know, influencing or advocating for. So our hope is that the information is a little more sort of usable and digestible for different audiences or sectors, depending on how you think you can take action. Right. So at the Morton Arboretum, for example, we lead a, uh, a network called the Global Conservation Consortium for Oak. It's another initiative that GCI started to focus on taxonomic groups that are pretty big, they're under threat, and they are widespread in the sense that you need coordinated effort to make sure that you're fully, you know, <laughs> serving them and nothing's falling between the gaps. Yeah. <laughs> and so Oaks is one of those for us. Um, and this was really useful, this exercise, because we were able to say, wow, there are you know, this many threatened oak species, there are, they are, you know, focused in these particular states, this is where we can really take action. This is where we need more partners, more local partners. And so we are actively using this information to inform our on the ground conservation work. Excellent. I love having that perfect translation of action to really the people that are using it. So that's great. But when you think of the statistics and everything that came out of this, the whole point of the assessment is the state of the United States and its trees. What is the state of the trees? I mean, what were some of the statistics on threatened species? Where are we at numbers wise with trees we really need to do something for? Uh, yes. And I'm sorry that I've rambled so long to no, like no, no. Bury the, buried the lead. Like, <laughs> this is what we're here for, right? <laughs> it was getting there. It's a buildup, not a burying. <laughs> So um, the results that we found, so remember we were doing red list assessments as well as nature serve right. assessments, and they're two similar but not identical platforms. So we actually found, you know, slightly different statistics based on these two different methodologies. Okay. So for the red list, there are three categories that are considered threatened. Um, for the red list, that's critically endangered, endangered, and vulnerable. And there are 94 species in that 
group in the, so what we would call threatened according to the red list, 94 species, which is about 11% of our U.S. trees. For NatureServe, they use the term at risk, and it includes four different NatureServe categories that are similar. Um, And there were 135 species, so 16% Mm, on the NatureServe platform. So the way that we've sort of messaged this is that Somewhere, but you know, probably 11 to 16 percent of U.S. trees are threatened with extinction um, because those tree species are sort of overlapping, but not completely overlapping between those two platforms. It's actually 165 species that are okay. on one or both of those right. of those different threat assessments. So. You know, I don't, it's probably not best practice to kind of use the collective, um, you know, percent, but it would be closer to 20% if you looked at both of those that are a species that's threatened on one or both of (laughs) those two different methodologies. Okay. That's alarming um, to say the least, but you know, you kind of look at it as, you know, at a global scale, you're not getting sort of the granular county level data that you would get with a, a, a more country focus like nature service. And so it doesn't surprise me, but it's good that there was some corroboration there. Those numbers aren't too far off from each other, but even just being able to combine those and say, let's just be safe and talk about these species all together. Yeah. And, and essentially we do present a lot of our results in the paper based on that metric that are, are you a threatened species on one or both of those platforms? Yeah. And there is a lot of like corroboration between them. So it's very common that a species is on both, right? Right. Or it's, um, you know, within one kind of somewhat parallel category, like either like really in trouble on both of those platforms. But there was one really interesting thing that we found that, and and I've spoken with my colleagues at NatureServe about this at length. One thing we found that differed between the two was, very common widespread species that are currently under threat from a bad invasive pest or disease. The Mm. red list, because one of the ways that you can be considered threatened, you can qualify as threatened on the red list is through rapid population decline. Things like our ash species. So, you know, green ash, white ash, obviously, Emerald ash borer is a recent, very, very, very bad invasive pest and insect that was, you know, discovered in Michigan in the late 1990s, early early 2000s. And in just the last like 20, 25 years, it has decimated ash populations across the eastern United States. It continues its march across the country. It was just discovered in Oregon. Yep. You know, it will continue to eliminate our ash. And just in those like two decades, it has plummeted ash populations. And you can use that and that sort of projection of how the trajectory of where those populations are going to assess those species as critically endangered. NatureServe doesn't use quite the same methodology. And so the ash, our eastern ash species are not considered threatened yet on huh. the NatureServe platform just because of the ways yeah. the equation work. So we found that actually in a couple different scenarios. So um, these species like American chestnut is another one, American elm through Dutch elm disease with American chestnuts. It was a chestnut blight. So it's actually really interesting and something that we probably want to kind of look into in more detail. But, you know, I think that it like what you're asking of these assessments, the sort of information that you want to pull from them just kind of understanding the subtleties and the kind of differences Mm. in the methodology can sort of lead to these different things. So, you know, it's that keeping that in mind, as you look at a red list assessment, you know, that does a pretty good job of like really being alert to for better or worse, you know, the, the rapid decline of species because of invasive pests and diseases, you know, will our Eastern American ash species go completely extinct? No, we know how to treat them and like we can do that so no they will probably not ever go completely extinct that's why we still have a bunch of ash in our parkways they're being actively treated right there are biocontrols out there that we're working on now there's you know breeding programs that are we're being looked that are looking into is it 
functionally becoming extinct in our eastern hardwood forests? Yeah, mm-hmm. it is. Will it ever be? Will ash ever be the 20% of standing trees that it, it was historically in states like Ohio and, you know, southeastern Michigan? No, probably not. So, I mean, I think it just depends on like what it is that you want to know about these, you know, species and sort of how it informs the action that you're going to take. But that was an interesting um, kind of distinction that we found between, between the two. That's a, that's a fascinating kind of, I'm guessing, unexpected result in a way is to kind of probe both how we calculate and how we query the, the, the calculations at the end of it all that, that in and of itself is interesting. And it just goes to show you like, methodology has an effect on all of our yeah. outcomes guys yeah <laughs> wow and it's not a, and it's not a perfect science but it has been tried and tested you know both of them have been tried and tested now for over four decades and you know they are pretty good objective methodologies for saying red flag you know these species are in trouble right um you know i think another thing that we just don't have a very good handle on is the potential for climate change to really impact these species and we're doing the best that we can with modeling and you know predicting you know suitable habitat but will that really correlate with like a one-to-one decline Mm. i don't know so you know, I think climate change is another thing that we have not done a very good job of incorporating that modeling and that sort of prediction into some of these threat assessments. Yeah. And it just gets so difficult. And and talk about missing data, how many people have assessed these species, let alone that particular part of their natural history. And, and you know, making projections is always fraught with Oh, I just gotta, uh, I don't know, <laughs> you know, Yeah. so that's tough. I, my, my heart goes out to y'all trying to really make that work in a meaningful way. And it's that trade off between, you know, waiting until the science is like really indisputable yeah. versus just taking action and saying, well, we're pretty sure that this species is not going to be happy in this habitat in the future. So maybe we need to start doing some assisted migration, maybe we need to do seed collecting, maybe we need to do some selective breeding, you know, what are the, what are the tactics that we can take now without perfect knowledge or perfect data? I mean, at the very least, collect seeds, store them if you can, get them into ex situ collections. Like there's a lot of actions you can do that regardless of what happens are probably going to be pretty good for a species overall. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I mean, I got an email a couple of months ago when it was when emerald ash borer was discovered in Oregon and learning from what we have been through in the Eastern United States, the U S forest service and some botanic garden partners in um, California, like the Huntington botanical garden had um, started an, an ash seed collecting project a couple of years ago. And we're doing just working really hard to bank as much germplasm as they could across the, from the Western ash species. Mm. And we got an email from, you know, a colleague saying, well, you know, our, this research project went from being, you know, anticipatory and preventative and proactive to like, it's reality. Like emerald ash borer is now here. And so it starts. And I think, there are so few scenarios where we can say we got out ahead of this. Yeah, you know, yeah. we started before. It everything is so reactionary in conservation. It's and that's really where we're trying to shift the needle to say, let's take action before we find that these things are already critically endangered. Right, right, and I'm. This is where assessments come in. Right, it's just a matter of seeing where our weaknesses are, knowing what we can improve on, and learning from things we've done elsewhere. And that's what excites me about sort of the uncertainty of the future one of the silver linings is like we've had some pretty tough lessons that have taught us a lot already it's just needing these assessments to show where we should start prioritizing some of our attention a little bit better Uh, you know better is even a a loaded statement just where it could be more effective in the long run yeah yeah and that's exactly our hope is that we can give some guidance you know our the paper has recommendations you know, states that have, you know, the the highest number of threatened species, what some of these threats are, what the different tree groups are, you know, what we basically think different actors in different sectors, you know, could potentially, what role could they play? That's excellent. And so with that in mind, if people want to find this assessment, 
benefit from its data, utilize its data, query the data, all of the things we talked about and more. The sky truly is the limit. Where do they go looking? So the report was published in the journal Plants, People, Planet. Um, Christina Carrero was our lead author on it, and I'm the senior author. So you can look it up there. It's data sharing for conservation. Um, and then the, the results are also available um, on our website on mortonarb.org under the global tree conservation um, page and U.S. tree assessments. People can also go, and that's where this sort of synthesis report mm. lives, right? That looks at these big patterns and where you can actually download that checklist and the database. So the checklist itself, um, which has the information about, you know, how each species is assessed on each of these different platforms, as well as where it exists in botanic gardens, um, because that is also a really important conservation tool, having yeah. sort of collections of these species. Um, all of that's available as supplementary material on the Plants, People, Planet um, paper, but you can also go to either the NatureServe uh, Explorer um, or to the IUCN Red List website where all of the individual assessments live. So you can look for your favorite tree species on either of those platforms. Fantastic. Well, Dr. Westwood, thank you so much for talking with us about this, but also for you and your colleagues and the hundreds of people that have done the work to make sure we understand our trees a little bit better. Thank you so much for everything. Thank you. Thank you for spreading the word. Um, I think this is a really great opportunity to share, you know, what we can all do and why this is important. And um, I hope it's been interesting. Hell yeah. And if they want to find out more about your work in particular, where do they look for that? Um, so probably just on our website, um, mortonarb.org and we have a plant and protect uh, section of our website which has a lot of our conservation work under there fantastic well again thank you so much for taking time out of what is a very busy schedule to talk with us i really appreciate it thank you it was good fun yeah good all right well hang in there and uh go trees all right fantastic and very important work i thank dr westwood for taking time out of her busy schedule to talk with us about this and i thank all of her colleagues co-authors and every botanist forester everyone that's had a stake in understanding the state of north american trees this is really important work and it gives us a framework for moving forward i highly encourage you to check out all of the links that i've put in the show notes over at indefensiveplants.com podcast because that's where you can make a mark and utilize this data for your own benefit for the trees benefit for the community's benefit once again all of the relevant links are in the show notes over at indefensiveplants.com podcast where you can also find ways to support the show because i literally could not be doing this show without support from my listeners you can do that through Patreon. You can do that by picking up a copy of my book, some of our customizable merch, or stickers. All of those are great ways to help keep this show up and running. And I thank everyone who supported it to date. But that is it for me this week. I thank you all for listening. Make sure you hit that subscribe button and keep checking back in because there's always good things just over the horizon. But until next time, hang in there, stay healthy, and get outside if you can. This is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios, everyone.